For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, Hebrews chapter 6, and this morning we're going to complete chapter 6 is our plan, verses 13 through 20, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Last week, we received a fairly stern and serious warning from the preacher, uh, the individual who wrote uh, Hebrews, the reality of apostasy. And certainly it is a very serious reality. There are those that have seemed to be deeply invested in the church, in Christ, in the gospel, seem to be transformed by it, and then repudiate it. And bear in mind that this rejection is a hardened rejection. It is public. It is strong. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that in such cases, similar to Judas Iscariot and others, that this is a falling away that cannot be reversed. It's a very serious thing, and he wants his audience to know <clears throat> that they need to take it seriously. But he gives them assurance in verses 9 through 12, and then he extends that to the rest of this chapter. And so if the danger last Sunday was that some people that are truly converted may unnecessarily doubt their salvation, the danger this morning is that some who are not truly converted may believe themselves to be falsely. And so while these truths are incredible and amazing, comforting, they bring peace and stability, we must always bear in mind that, that they apply only to those who have truly repented of their sins and are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. To that end, then, our title for this morning is Anchored, and it comes from verse 19, where the author says, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And so we are no longer, or no longer need to be adrift, <clears throat> untethered from truth and from our creator, but we can indeed have an anchor for our soul. I remember uh, when I was a younger man uh, at a family camp taking a canoe out. If you want a more modern canoe story, you can talk to any of my family members, and with great joy and delight, they'll regale you with that particular story, but this one goes back a little farther. We had some downtime in between sessions and activities, and so I just paddled out to the middle of the lake, laid back, closed my eyes, and just was at peace until I opened my eyes and realized I drifted quite a far distance from where I had started out and needed to paddle quite furiously to get back to where I needed to go. To be adrift, unanchored, untethered, is not a place that we want to be. And for the recipients of this sermon slash letter, they perhaps are feeling like they don't fit. They don't fit in Judaism and they don't fit in their culture. And both the Roman culture and the Jewish culture is against them. And so they have felt, perhaps, our feeling 
adrift and are in danger of leaving off the actual anchor that they have. And so the author of Hebrews, his theme throughout this letter slash sermon is stay tethered to Christ. Don't abandon Jesus. He is superior. He is the true Messiah. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the Savior of the only Savior for the human soul. And so stick with him. And so we come now to our text this morning and this idea of being anchored in Christ. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. As noted, this is a theme that the author, preacher of Hebrews, has been weaving throughout his sermon, his letter. But in the middle of chapter 5, he left off this discussion of Melchizedek and Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. And he is taking it aside so that he can help his audience better receive what he has to say. And so for the rest of chapter 5 and all of 6, he's going to rebuke them, he's going to warn them, and then he's going to comfort them, which is where we're at this morning. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, Pastor Luke is going to start us into this conversation on Melchizedek. I try to give the associate the easier passages. And so we see, starting in verses 13 and 14, that we can be anchored in God's promises. Anchored in God's promises. There are three things that the author brings to our attention that anchor us. That in a world of chaos, give us stability. That in a world of disruption and pain and suffering, give us calm and peace and comfort. And the first is that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He draws our attention to a promise that God made all the way back to Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, this promise first comes in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham and his wife Sarah are at that point beyond the age when they can have children naturally. And they presume then that they are not going to have children. But God gives a promise to Abraham that he is going to have a son, and that from his uh, union, from that son is going to raise up a nation, and individuals are going to bless all of the world, that in, in, the, in him and Abraham, all nations will be blessed. 
Years go by, and it doesn't seem that promise is going to be fulfilled, and Abraham is unsure, and God brings him out to the night sky in Genesis 15, and says, can you count the stars? And if you can number the stars, then you can number your progeny, you can number your descendants. And then we know, unfortunately, Abraham tries with his wife Sarah to concoct a plan to take a sort of sidestep in chapter 16. But then in chapter 22, and this is the uh, passage that the author of Hebrews is referring to, God reiterates again his promise to Abraham. You will have a son. And in Genesis 22, Abraham has been asked to sacrifice his son. After years of waiting, finally the promise is here. And then God says, now I want, to off- I want you to offer your son on an altar. And so what does Abraham do? He obeys and believes God to the point that it says in Hebrews 11 that he believed that God would even raise Isaac back to life from the dead if need be. God makes promises, many promises to us, and he always keeps them. God does not need to make any promises to us. He owes us nothing. He is under no obligation to us, and yet he delights in making promises to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that the good work that he's begun in us, that he will perform that until the day of Jesus Christ, that all those who are called to him will remain in that state and none will be lost, that we are held in his hand and in his son's hand, And together we have great assurance of our destiny and of our salvation. These and so many other promises that God makes. Notice that they are rooted in his character, a point that the author of Hebrews is going to expand on as he moves forward. But it says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. We take oaths. Just this week I was involved in a court case remotely. Not for myself, just to let everybody be at ease, but was assisting someone in their court case. And it began, as court cases do, by holding up the Bible and swearing on God and on his word to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We take oaths by God and by his word and by things greater than than ourselves. And so the author of Hebrews says, so who does God swear by? If God's going to make an oath, whose name does he invoke? So that people can have confidence that he will will follow through. Well, there's no one greater than God. God doesn't need to make oaths. His word is his bond. His word is a reflection of his character. There's no need for God to swear. And yet for our sakes, he does. And when he does, who's he going to swear by? Himself. His character is unimpeachable. He is perfection. He is holy and righteous and good. And especially in those moments where we doubt that, especially in those moments where it does not seem that those things are true, that God isn't trustworthy anymore, that he isn't eternal anymore, that he has ceased to be omnipotent, that he might have messed up this one, this doesn't seem to be going the right way, this seems beyond his control, this doesn't seem to match his character. In all of those circumstances, and perhaps especially in those circumstances, we can be anchored to the fact that God not only makes promises, but he confirms those promises upon the character of the one who makes them. 
God is holy and righteous, and he is gentle and kind, and he is good, and he is truth, and he is justice, and he is love, and so much more. That's who he is. And so the promises flow out of his character. What is interesting as well in verse 14 is that they are grounded in his eternality. What does he say to Abraham? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Based on the chronology, Abraham saw his son and some of his grandchildren, and then he passed off the scene. He did not see the nation that would come from him. He did not see the full fulfillment of the promises that God made. He did not see the nation of Israel grow in the land of Egypt and then come out under God's mighty hand. He did not see the reality of Moses and Joshua. He did not see the kingship of David, this side of glory. He had a front row seat from the heavenlies. But in his lifetime, he only saw a small fulfillment, a small piece of the fulfillment of the full promise of God to him. And yet we rest in the fact that our God sees the end from the beginning. He's outside of time. And so when he makes promises such as these, he's already there in a way that we can't possibly fathom. So his promises we know are true because he's already at the end. There is no beginning and end with God. There's no time. We are time bound. We can't make promises beyond our ability to fulfill them, although we still do. But God is not bound in time as we are. And so when he makes promises, especially a promise such as this to Abraham, that has a fulfillment that actually is being fulfilled in us, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, something that Abraham could not even possibly fathom 2023 AD. Couldn't even possibly get there in his mind, and yet God was already there, and he's already in the future. And so God's promises are based on and grounded in his eternality, something that we can anchor our souls to. And so therefore he keeps all of his promises. He did bless Abraham. He did bring the son of promise in a miracle long after Abraham and Sarah could have done that naturally. He saved Isaac from the sacrifice that he asked Abraham to make. And he brought from Isaac twins and then so on and so forth, the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, and then the 12 tribes of Israel and so on and so forth. But we know that Abraham is the father to all of those who had faith in God in a certain sense. And so when Paul says in Galatians 3 that those of us who believe in God are also, in a sense, sons of Abraham. Abraham had no possible way to fathom the fullness of what God was promising him, nor to see its fulfillment. And yet, here we are, and we are part of that fulfillment here this morning. God makes promises and God keeps them. And so when things come into our lives unexpectedly and they are unwanted, know that God's promises have not changed. When the world around us seems to be running as far as it can from God and his word, and as Romans 1 says, not only participating in evil, but encouraging everyone around them to do the same. And it seems like increasingly we're in the uh, ever-shrinking minority. 
God's promises have not changed. His arm is not shortened. His power is not diminished. He has made promises and he will keep them because he always does. And so to the Hebrews that the author of Hebrews is writing to, preaching to, that have been persecuted and are about to be persecuted even more under Nero, the message is to them, God's promises are sure. His character is perfect. Wherever we have not yet been, he already is. Trust him. But notice in verses 15 through 18 that we can also be anchored in God's grace. God does not need to swear by anything. Whatever he says is true because he's the one that said it. But understanding our weakness, he even gives us an oath. He gives Abraham an oath in Genesis 22. And so 15 through 18, in the first place, God understands our weakness in verses 16 and 17a. God understands how we operate. He made us. So he says, people swear by something greater than themselves, and when they have a dispute, an oath is final for confirmation. Again, as in this court case and the court cases that we have and these types of things, an oath of some kind is, is needed and oftentimes used. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise what to do, he took an oath. God understands our weakness. We are finite and we are frail. And we forget his character, especially when circumstances come that seem to contradict it. We need reminders. One of the many reasons we're here this morning, hopefully, is because of that. You would think that truths as great as these and as precious as these would never be forgotten, and that's not true. We forget we need reminders, weekly reminders, daily reminders. So God understands our weakness. He understands Abraham's weakness. He tried to fulfill the promise on his own. He sinned in many ways. God understood Abraham's weakness. And so even in the rescue of his son Isaac from that sacrifice that he asked, he says, I swear by myself, my promises are true. He gives Abraham reassurance. God's oath then reassures us of his character. Notice the last part of verse 17. To show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God's oath here to Abraham and his oaths to us, his promises to us, reassure us of the character of the one who's making them. The unchangeable character of his purpose. God does not change his mind, God is not unstable. He's not unsteady. He's not unsure. We oftentimes are unsure. It takes us a very long time to make a major decision, and then as soon as we've made it, we second-guess it. We are overthinkers, some of us to greater degrees than others, but that's how we are as humans. We have a lot of self-doubt. Our God is not like that. Our God does not have any doubt in himself. All things that he is and all things that he says will come to pass because of who he is. And so he has no doubts in himself. He's not unstable or unsure. And when he then swears by himself, it reassures us of that character. 
that God is good and he is gracious and kind. He is for us and not against us. He is holy and righteous and pure. And we remember that when he reassures us along the way through his promises. And then his character gives us confidence so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, one unchangeable thing ought to be enough. When God speaks, it is always true because he is truth. And yet God gives us even something more because of our weakness, out of his grace. He makes promises to us. God's promises and God's oaths, God's character cannot change. It's impossible for God to lie. And so by his promises and by the oaths that he has taken, by his character and by his promises, we have two unchangeable things that ought to give us great confidence. God has said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Forget for against it. Do we believe that this morning? It sounds like you didn't. Do we believe that this morning? Okay. God has said that as Christ came the first time, Christ is coming again. Do we believe that this morning? These and so many other promises God gives us. And because of his character, he has never failed us in the past. Everything he has ever said has always come true. Even as we've had to wait, God's character is perfect. Therefore, it gives us confidence, or ought to give us confidence, that the things that he has said are true, even when it appears that they are not. When almost every show that we watch, almost everything in our culture appears to be anti-God, we can rest in the reality that God is still on his throne. He still is saving souls. He is still at work in the hearts and lives and minds of men and women to bring them into relationship with himself. And nothing and no one is more powerful than he. He is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. And therefore, God's character and that confidence in his character ought to give us hope so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What did he say in verse 11? We desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And he repeats that again here in verse 18. We have fled for refuge. Then take hope. Have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The way things currently are is not the way things used to be. And I'm not talking about the good old days back in the 1950s and 60s. I'm talking about the Garden of Eden, like all the way back. And the way things are, are not how things are going to be. And so we can and ought to have hope that the God who says that the work that I've begun in you, I will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ, that we have hope in that in, our, in, in us, in our lives. And the God who says that he's going to bring many souls to himself and bring many into relationship with him, Paul put up with a lot of different persecutions, a lot of obstacles. And God comes to him repeatedly and says, at least in one place certainly, 
There are many in this city that are mine. Preach. Preach the gospel. People will believe, even though it seems like people will not. God's church will grow, God's church will expand, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now you may notice that I skipped a verse, verse 15. Because if God's oath reassures of his character, his character gives us confidence, that confidence translates into hope. Hope also then enables patience. What does it say in verse 15? And it might appear at first blush, this is sort of like outside of the purvey of the text, but I think this is in line with it. The author of Hebrews says, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. How long have you been waiting for some of the promises of God? We've been waiting for the promise of Christ's return for almost 2,000 years. And yet, because God delays, does that mean that he is going to fail to keep his promise? No. As surely as he's kept all of his promise, he will keep that one among many others. And so, there are those, according to 1 Peter, that say, where is the promise of his coming? For generations, for millennia, he has not returned. And they mock and they scoff. And yet... It says that even though God is long-suffering, he has not forgotten his promise. He is coming. But those that mock the coming of Jesus Christ don't actually want him to return. Because when he does, he is not coming as the baby in the manger. He is coming as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings with a sword in his mouth and the white charger to destroy those that have arrayed against him. Thank God for his patience and his long-suffering. But Abraham had to wait many years, decades, for God's promise to be fulfilled. And yet, because of the confidence that he had in the character of the one who made the promise to him, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if all of that was not enough, that we can be anchored in God's promises and anchored in God's grace. He wraps up by letting us know that we can be anchored in Christ. Where do all the promises of God find their yes? They all find their yes in Christ Jesus. First of all, Christ is the anchor for our soul. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Jesus Christ the righteous. As things come and go in our lives, as pain and suffering is a part of that, as crisis comes upon us and our family and those that we know and love, as we live in this sin-cursed, sin-sick world, we have a sure and steady anchor for our soul that causes us not to be adrift, adrift on whatever isms and philosophies and whatever news articles and blog posts and podcasts by our favorite ranters take us. We don't need to be gone down rabbit holes on the internet. We have a sure and steady anchor of the soul and it's Jesus Christ the righteous. We no longer need to fear because John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Fear relates to judgment 
And in Christ, we know in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so through all of COVID and Hurricane Fiona, these big things and then personal things in our family, through all of that, one thing we should not struggle with or should not succumb to, I should say, is fear. Jesus Christ is the anchor for our souls. Our task does not change. It is to believe and to share the gospel. That is the same as it's always been. We can get off on tangents. We can shift our focus, but every time we do, we get ourselves into trouble. Towards the end of this book, the author is going to say, fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race. Christ is our hope, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now this, this should blow our minds. Last year we spent too much time, according to some, in the book of Leviticus. And we know from Leviticus 16, one person out of the entire nation of Israel, one day out of the year, could enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat of God, the Shekinah glory of God was present there. And after making sacrifice for his own sins, he could go in and sprinkle blood on the altar, on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, and then he could go back out, sacrifice for the sins of the people, and go back in and make atonement for them. One person, once a year, with great fear and trepidation. And yet, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said that one word in Greek, to telestai, which is, it is finished, what happened? The veil of the temple, that curtain that separated people from the presence of God was ripped in two, which means that if the tabernacle was still in effect today, any of you here this morning, any of us here this morning that are in Jesus Christ could walk behind that curtain any time we wanted to. Hope has entered into the inner realities. Hope has gone before us into the presence of God so that we are not consumed by it, so that we are not destroyed by it. But we can come into the presence of God, and the author of Hebrews is going to say later on, come boldly before the throne of grace, not arrogantly, but boldly. We have this hope in Jesus Christ. He has gone before into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of his Father on our behalf, so now we can too enter into that presence. Christ is our hope. Thirdly, Christ is our forerunner, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. There's many postulations as to what the author of Hebrews had in mind. Forerunner as far as a scout in the military to do reconnaissance. Forerunner as far as, as going ahead to make sure that the path is safe. One illustration is of a uh, sort of a tugboat or a smaller ship as larger ships would come into harbors especially that they had a lot of sandbars. They had to wait to high tide in order to get into the harbor. But they would anchor their ship. They'd tie a, a, a tow rope onto a smaller vessel that could get into the harbor, even at lower tides. And then once the tides came and, and lifted, then the larger ship following that rope and following that smaller ship could also get into harbor safely. Whichever illustration is in view here, wherever we're going, Jesus is already there. He's already gone before us. So that in Psalm 23, when it says, yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Wherever we're going, 
Jesus has gone there ahead of us. Wherever we're going, Jesus is already there. He's our forerunner. And then lastly, he is also the greatest high priest, something that we'll look at in more depth as we look at chapter 7. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a piece that the pastor that wrote Hebrews and spoke Hebrews wants to give to his audience. They couldn't handle it until now. But now he again reiterates what he started with is that Jesus is the greatest high priest. His high priesthood is not after Aaron or Levi. It's not a human priesthood, although he is fully human on our behalf. But it's a Melchizedekian priesthood. It's a different priesthood entirely. It's greater than the Aaronic priesthood. It's greater than Abraham. It's greater than Moses. It's greater than angels. It's greater than anything else. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is Lord of lords and King of kings. And so our response this morning, do you delight in trusting God? question could have simply been, do you trust God? And I hope most of us here this morning would nod in assent. Yes, yes, I trust God. But the question is more than that. Do you delight in trusting God? Do you believe his motivation is for your best and not for your harm? Do you believe that his heart is for you and not against you? Do you believe that the plans and purposes he has for you are the best they possibly could be, including the plans and purposes that involve suffering and pain? God the Father and God the Son's plan was God the Son's crucifixion. The worst thing that ever happened in human history is that a truly innocent man suffered the penalty not for any of his own sins, he had none, but for the sins of the world. That's the, the worst thing that ever happened is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be remembering that in just a few weekends. And it's simultaneously the best thing that ever happened in human history because by it we can be saved and brought into relationship with God the Father and be declared righteous and adopted into his family and all of these realities. The worst thing that has happened to you or will yet happen to you, if you are God's, he will use that for his glory and your good. And right now, as you're in the middle of it, perhaps it doesn't feel that way, but the truth remains the same. You can be anchored to God's promises because he makes them and he always keeps them. You can be anchored to his grace he knows our weaknesses, and he gives us grace upon grace. And you can be anchored to Jesus Christ, who became one of us to redeem us and reconcile us to his Father. So, when sin tempts, do you delight in trusting God that that sin cannot satisfy, but he can? When you doubt, do you delight in trusting that even though it doesn't feel like it, he is on your side. He is for you, not against you. When you see all of the messages, the anti-God messages and the anti-God entertainment, and it wearies your soul, do you delight in trusting him that he is bringing all things to a preferred end and one day sin will be gone? Do you delight in trusting him? Allow me to end with some words from Samuel Rutherford.
Our hope is not hung upon such an untwisted thread as I imagine so, or it is likely, but the cable, the strong rope of our fastened anchor is the oath and promise of him who is eternal verity. Our salvation is fastened with God's own hand and Christ's own strength to the strong stake of God's unchangeable nature. And this anchor, unlike a ship's anchor, does not go down, it goes up. And we have this as a sure and steady anchor of our souls. My prayer is that you have that this morning. Let's look to our Lord and Savior in prayer. God, I pray that we would just be in awe of you and your amazing grace. You remember our frame. You know that we are dust. You know our struggles, our sins, our rebellion, our doubts. And yet, Father, as the author of Hebrews reminded us as we looked at it last Sunday, you also remember our love for you and our love for each other. And you are not so unjust as to ignore and forget that. You know we are weak and in need of your wisdom, and so your servant James tells us to ask for wisdom because you love giving us wisdom and you are not disappointed that we've asked. Father, you remember that we doubt and we struggle we have pain and suffering. We have sin and crises and big and small. And so, Father, you come to us and you give us promises and you reassure us in those promises by your character. You give us grace, so much grace. And you have given us your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have given us your Holy Spirit, who is in us to remind us of these truths. Father, help us to be anchored in you, rooted and grounded in you, you who are truth. So many voices seemingly so loud calling for an abandonment of you and abandonment of truth. God, help us by your grace to stand fast, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide, anchored to your promises, to your character, to your grace, to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.